Turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, and listen closely to the reading of God's Word. This morning's reading comes from the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 through verse 8, through chapter 8, verse 12. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning into midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Mashalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you are here with us because you have promised that you would be. We ask that your spirit would speak to us now through your word. Give us all ears to hear what it is that you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so we've come to chapter 8 in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah after taking a little break with Ian last week. And um, chapter eight's a little bit of a turning point in the book, so let's take just a minute and let's recap the story so far. So you remember that around the year 600 BC, uh, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed and Israel was carried off from the land that God gave them into exile in Babylon. And this all happened because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But God preserved them there in Babylon, and after 70 years, as he promised that he would, he stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the king, to send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And that's where the story in Ezra picks up. So first they rebuilt the altar, and then after some fits and starts and under some heavy opposition, they they finished rebuilding the temple as well. The temple wasn't what it used to be, but God had kept his promise to bring them back to the land. And so sometime later, Ezra was sent to Jerusalem to teach the people and also to straighten out uh, some messes that had been made. In particular, a mess had been made by a number of the Israelites who had unlawfully married some of the pagan women from some of the surrounding countries. But Ezra called them to repentance, and the people did repent of their sins. And so Ezra, which is kind of part one of this story, ends on a somber note of confession and repentance. And then in part two, you remember, Nehemiah gets word 
um, that the people in Israel are in great trouble and shame, it says. So, so Nehemiah, who's a member of the king's court, he goes to Jerusalem with the king's permission, and he kind of assesses the situation, and then he very skillfully manages another impressive building project. So Nehemiah and the people, they rebuilt, rebuilt the wall in just 52 days, again, under heavy opposition. So that brings us to the end of chapter 6. In chapter 6, we see the wall completed, and then in chapter 7, which we're kind of skipping over, Nehemiah does a sort of roll call for all the people, and he again gives a list of all the families that originally came back from Babylon. So that brings us to chapter 8, and uh, as you heard, if you were paying attention, this section in Nehemiah actually starts at the end of verse 73 in chapter 7. The chapter break is not correct there. Um, remember that the chapter breaks were added a thousand years after the New Testament was written. So they're usually helpful, but they're not always perfect. So don't be, don't be thrown by that. But it's important in this case because the timing of this episode matters a lot. So let's look at it. He says, When the seventh month had come... The people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Okay, so at this point, the wall's been finished for about a week. The mortar's not even fully cured, and the people of God are gathering. Why did they gather? Well, the first thing we can say is that they gathered because that's what God's people do. God's people have always been a gathering people. God tells his people to gather, he tells them when to gather, and he tells them what to do when they gather. And so for Israel, the beginning of the seventh month was one of those prescribed times for gathering. So the seventh month was important for several reasons, but most importantly, that was the time that God gave Israel for marking the Day of Atonement, which you remember the Day of Atonement, right? That's the one day in the year when the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies and he can offer a sacrifice as a sin offering for the people of Israel. If he went in on any other day or in any way other than exactly the manner in which God prescribed and God would kill him. So this was serious business. It was a holy time, but it was also a time of celebration. So serious celebration, you might say. And that'll be a theme for us this morning. So there were, there were three parts to this celebration, which lasted essentially the entire month. The three parts were the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the month, then the Day of Atonement on the 10th day, and followed by the Feast of Booths starting on the 15th day of the month. And Leviticus 23 describes the celebration that God commanded. So we'll get to the Feast of Booze a little later on. But this is what it says about the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus chapter 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. So when the people gathered on the first day of the month, this is what they were doing. This day was to be a Sabbath to them, a day of rest, and a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. So there's no mention of trumpets in our passage. They may have been there or they may not have been. You know, they're in the process of restoring the old ways of worship, so maybe they hadn't gotten to the trumpets yet. I don't know. But they knew that they were supposed to gather on this day to worship. So remember that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is one of returning and rebuilding. And there's two big building projects in this story, right? In Ezra, it's the temple, and in Nehemiah, it's the wall. But in chapter 8, and for the rest of the book of Nehemiah, we start to see that it's not temples or walls that God is primarily interested in. It's worship. It's worship. So we've heard through this series, right, that what God is, is rebuilding in this story is his people. And what distinguishes the people of God is not temples or walls. It's worship. It's the worship of Yahweh and the presence of Yahweh among his people when they gather to worship. It's what happens inside the walls that makes God's people unique. And that's what needed to be restored, the worship of Yahweh. So the wall had meaning, but not without worship. So this worship service in this chapter, it's not a celebration of the wall being complete. It's more like, no, okay, the wall is done, so now we can get back to focusing on what we were always meant to do, which is worship. So the people gathered, and God said in the law that when they came together, it was to be a holy convocation. So a convocation is just another word for a gathering, right? But this gathering was holy because God himself had set it apart. That's what holy means. It means set apart, distinct, special. Um, God appointed certain times for his people to come together, and those times were unique. They weren't like all the other days. 
And it wasn't just these annual feasts that were set apart. Every Sabbath, in fact, the people were to gather together in a holy convocation. In that same chapter in Leviticus, God said, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. A holy convocation. So when God's people come together in the time and the manner which God prescribes, something profound and wonderful is happening. It's a holy thing. And that's our connection, right, to this story in Nehemiah. The, the New Testament word, the, the Greek word that gets at this idea of a holy convocation is the word ecclesia. Y'all have heard that before. The word ecclesia, which is the, our word for church. So ecclesia means a called out assembly. Or we might say a holy assembly. So I want you to see that at its root, what we do here every Sunday morning is fundamentally the same thing that we're reading about here in Nehemiah 8 or in Leviticus 23. When we come together on the Lord's Day to worship, it is a holy convocation. We should feel a kind of primal connection to what's happening here. Some of the specifics are different for sure, but the fundamentals are the same. God meets with his people, his bride. He's done it from the beginning, and he does it today. He meets with them, and he speaks to them. He shares a meal with them. He ministers to them. Jesus said, right, that when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you might say, well, of course, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? Right. So Jesus must have meant, he must have been saying that when God's people gather in his name, he is there with them in some unique way. It's true that God's always with you, but it's also true that he's here in a way that's different. So when you walk in on a Sunday morning, there should be a little bit of a buzz in the air. You should be a little on edge. Something special is happening. God is meeting with his people. He's here. So let that thought just roll through your mind as you're getting ready on Sunday morning and as you're coming into the room. I'm going to walk into that room with my people, and God will be there with us. So the people of God gathered together as a holy convocation. What did they do? It says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. So the central element of this worship service is a reading of the law. Remember, when you hear Law of Moses, just think of the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of our Bible. And we don't know exactly which part Ezra read. You know, he, he may have read just a part, like the book of Deuteronomy, or he may have just started from the very beginning. We don't know. Um, it says that they told Ezra to bring the book of the law, so this clearly wasn't something that Ezra compelled the people to do. There was general agreement among everyone that this was the right thing. Everyone understood that in this situation, we should have a reading of the law. And everyone was there, men, women, children, all those who could understand. You know, there were some services in Israel where only the men participated, but on occasions like this, everyone was there. So why did they think that a reading of the law was the thing to do? Again, the program here is a restoration of the old way of worshiping God. Not because the old way is always best, it might be or it might not be, but if the old way was obedient to God's command and the new way isn't, then yes, the old way is best. And so that was the case here. The instruction to have a public reading of the law comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Let's read that. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourners within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. It's such a rich text. I feel like there's a lot we could say about it, but the point right now is that everyone understood that this was the right time to have a reading of the law. So that's what they did. And the purpose just as it always had been, was so that everyone, men, women, children, sojourners, everyone, could hear what God had to say, so that they would learn to fear the Lord and to obey his law. It's important that you not think of this as some sort of ceremony. 
It's a ceremony of sorts, but in this ceremony, God is speaking to his people, to his bride, directly. This is what I want you to do. In fact, this is the ordinary way that God has always spoken to his people, right? Throughout all of history, Old Testament and New, the ordinary way that God has spoken to his people has been through the public reading of his word. You know, in our day, in God's kindness, he's given us all personal copies of the word so that we can read it at home. And that's amazing. I'm thankful for that. It's possible for us to know the word of God better than any ordinary Israelite ever could have. And so we should devote ourselves to doing just that. But without taking away from the private study of the word, I want to encourage you to carve out a category for the public reading of the word here on the Lord's Day as a special thing. When God comes together with his bride, both parties speak, just like when you and I sit down to dinner with our wife or our husband. On Sunday morning, we express our affirmation and adoration for God in worship, and he speaks to us through his word. The public reading of the scripture is not something that we do to demonstrate how much we revere God's word. That turns into something that we say. But I encourage you to see the reading of the scriptures not as something that we're saying, but as something that God is saying directly, out loud, to us, his people. And if that sounds a little mystical, a little strange, then I'd say, yes, it is. It's incredibly strange and wonderful. And I would remind you that we're charismatics. We believe in that sort of thing. If you believe that God speaks to us through prophecy in kind of a mediated, imperfect sort of way, which we do, and that gets you excited, which it should, and you think, wow, God might be speaking to me, then how much more excited should you be when God speaks perfectly, unmistakably to us through the scripture? Don't make the mistake of creating a false distinction in your mind between things that seem sort of liturgical or structured on the one hand and things that are charismatic or spirit-filled on the other. We want both at the same time, right? Because both are a gift from God. And the Spirit of God is there in both if we have ears to hear. We believe that the Word of God, just like it did in the beginning in creation, it goes out into the world, it vibrates the air, and it causes things to happen. And that's no less true when His words are being spoken from behind a podium. So let's look now at how Israel responded to the public reading. In verse 3, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What I want us to see here is just how Israel honored the reading of the word. They honored it as if God himself were speaking to them. And of course, that's the point. He was. So they honored the reading of the word with their minds, their bodies, and their words. First, with their minds. It says that the ears of the people were attentive, attentive to the book of the law. So they honored the word simply by paying close attention to it. And on this occasion, they paid careful attention from early morning until midday. If you're counting, that's about five hours of paying careful attention. We may go a little long this morning, but not compared to that. So I assume it was hard for them to focus for that long, just as it would be for us, but it says that they paid careful attention to the words that were read. You know, there have been plenty of people who've lamented sort of the short attention spans of our digitized minds, right? Um, but there's truth to that, and maybe we can say that the most important reason why a short attention span or an easily distracted mind is a problem is that it hinders our ability to hear when God speaks to us. Scripture's pretty, pretty clear that God doesn't tend to speak in sound bites, right? He gave us this really long book. But God apparently thinks that some things are worth taking a long time to say. Think of Moses, who waited for 40 days on Mount Sinai to hear from God. Or Jesus, who prayed all night in the garden while his disciples slept. God might choose to drop a word on you like a flash, but more often we have to pay attention, sometimes for a long time. 
Wait on the Lord, the Psalms tell us. So we should try to cultivate the kind of mind that can pay careful attention to the word. We don't want to miss what God has to say. They also honored the word with their bodies. Look at all the physical things that they did. It says they built a platform, they stood, they lifted their hands, and they bowed their heads. The platform, I'm sure, made it easier for the word to be heard and seen. And there, there might have also been some symbolic significance to it. The text kind of makes a point of saying that as Ezra read, he was above all the people. But just notice how the physicality of it all is highlighted. Their ears were attentive. He opened the book in the sight of all the people. They all stood, which means the same thing now that it did then. It was a sign of honor. Like when everyone stands when a president enters the room, right? And it's also a sign that they were active participants in what was happening, right? They're not passively, passively observing a ceremony. They're actively receiving instruction from their Lord. And they lifted their hands and bowed their heads. That's a posture of worship that only makes sense if it's God himself who is speaking to them in the words that were being read by Ezra. They weren't worshiping the book. They were worshiping the God who speaks and who was speaking to them in that moment through the words that were being read. And then lastly, they honored it with their words. It says, all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. So our word, amen, is from the Hebrew. And it just means truly or it is so, right? It's a way of saying, I agree with what was just said. It's like a verbal signature at the bottom of the page. And it's right for us to honor the word by vocalizing our agreement, right? If you're in a conversation with someone and they respond to you with just a silent stare, what do you assume? You assume that they either didn't understand you or they don't agree with you. Now, of course, God knows our thoughts, but it's still appropriate for us to speak when we're spoken to. We've, we've kind of developed, you've noticed, of course, sort of organically, our own habit of responding with the words, thanks be to God, when the scriptures read. And our elders actually didn't direct us to do that. It just sort of happened. And, um, and it feels right. Again, when God meets with us, both parties speak. He speaks truth to us with authority, and we joyfully, humbly respond to him with our gratitude and agreement. So we, we use the words, thanks be to God, and there's an old tradition in lots of churches um, of using that phrase, and it's great. You know, this is not the kind of thing where we have a law that we have to follow. But maybe it would be meaningful if we just actually said amen, like they did. This is just, just something to think about. Again, there's no rule to follow here, but amen is a really wonderful word. You know, it, it rolls off the tongue uh, pretty easily in our church culture. And there's a good reason for that. It has a history. See, amen is the actual Hebrew word, right? Just carried straight over into English. So when we say amen, you know, we're saying the same word, making the same sounds that the Israelites said to voice their agreement with God in the wilderness. That's kind of beautiful, I think. Um, and you can go even further. Pretty much every language on earth just carries that word straight over from the Hebrew. So, you know, what's the German word for amen? It's amen. You know, what's the Albanian word? It's amen. You, you get the point. Um, so when God speaks, all his people say literally with one word, one voice, amen. I find that exciting. Um, so that's something to think about. But the main point is just that it's completely right and appropriate for us to respond with our words when God speaks to us through his word. Speak when you're spoken to. All right, some applications. How should we honor the word? So the first is the most obvious one. Pay careful attention to the Bible. Read it. Hear it. Devote lots of time to it. A disproportionate amount of time. Devote more time and energy to knowing this than you do to anything else in your life. It's your first and final authority. And also, develop habits that help you to pay closer attention to the word. Um, consi consider using a physical Bible rather than your phone or a computer. There's nothing wrong with having a Bible app on your phone, of course. I have one, and I use it all the time to search for things. But if your Bible is just an app among four dozen other apps on your phone, it's going to be an uphill battle to give it the honor that it deserves. Um, and if your goal is to pay close attention to the word... Then just remember that smartphones are the most distracting devices ever invented by man. That's what they were made for, and they're very good at it. So I strongly encourage you to use a physical Bible for your, uh, for your personal study. 
And also, train yourself to be able to pay attention to the Word for longer periods of time. Um, You can't do this every day, but set aside the occasional Sunday afternoon to just sit and read the Word for an hour or two, undistracted. You may find that God will speak something to you that you hadn't heard before. And let's honor the Word with our bodies, both the public reading and at home. Again, we don't have rules to follow here, but just give some thought to how you can honor the Word with your body as well as with your mind. Remember that what we do with our bodies matters in ways that we don't always even understand. Um, the spiritual world and the physical world are not separate and disconnected, right? Uh, body and soul are very much connected, and they will be for all eternity. So treat your physical Bible with honor, and you might find that it helps you to regard the content of the words more highly. And during the public reading, you know, maybe we don't have to stand necessarily like they did, although lots of churches do that. Maybe it's not a bad idea. But just remember that, you know, we're not a collection of disembodied brains. Um, Let's think together about ways that we can honor the word with our body. So at the very least, try to cultivate a kind of of edge-of-your-seat anticipation towards the spoken word of God. God is speaking. Pay close attention. Okay, let's keep going. Because hearing is not enough. There's no point in hearing if we don't understand. Picking up in verse 7. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So I hinted a minute ago that you know, there's something kind of mystical and mysterious about the spoken word of God here in this setting. And I think that's true, but it's not something magical that benefits you just by virtue of being in the room, right? The point of hearing the word is to understand. Six times in this chapter, he speaks of the need for, people, for the people to understand what was being read. And it was clear that understanding was the point of this whole gathering from the passage that we read in Deuteronomy, right? God told Israel to assemble the people and read the word so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of his law. So the point of hearing is to learn, to understand, so that you can obey. You can't obey a command that you don't understand. It's one thing to obey a command without understanding why. Every parent has a category for that. But you can't obey if you don't understand what you're being asked to do. And that might seem obvious, but it actually hasn't always been. There's actually a long history of debate in the church about this. And the Catholics are actually having a debate about it right now. So you probably know that the Catholic Church for centuries practiced a Latin mass where the whole service was conducted in Latin and no one could understand the words that were being said. And the Catholics are actually kind of split on the Latin Mass today. There's a movement to bring it back. But the idea is that the grace of God comes to you simply by participating in the service, uh, whether you understand the words or not. And actually, I get the appeal of that kind of thing, but it's just not true. It's just not true. It isn't what the Bible teaches. Um, They miss the point of what's happening when we meet with God. The thing that's really magical and mysterious is that when God speaks, that we could understand. How incredible is that? How unbelievable that the infinite, perfect, transcendent God could speak and we, small, stilted, sinful people, could understand what he says. How can that be? The God who's so far above us that he's in a category unto himself. He's completely unlike us. How can it be possible for us to communicate with him? How could we understand what he has to say? That's the mystery. Gracious, you don't need to say it in Latin to make it impressive. You know, philosophers have pondered this for centuries. How can it be possible for finite creatures to understand anything about the infinite God? But nevertheless, amazingly enough, when God speaks to his people, he intends for them to understand. And it's possible for us to understand. But we do need help. Verse 7 says that the Levites helped the people to understand the law. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So I I don't know exactly what it looked like in this gathering. It says, while the people remained in their places. So maybe they read a bit and then, you know, split up into small discussion groups with the Levites, or or maybe the Levites took turns speaking to the whole assembly. We don't have those details, so it must not really matter. But the point is that they helped the people to understand what had been read. So one really important way that we apply this in our church is in our method of preaching. So in our church, as in many other churches, our elders practice what we call expositional preaching, which just means that we work our way through the books of the Bible and the elders give us the sense of the text. 
they help us to understand what it says. You know, Ezra is described as one who was skilled in the law. He was skilled at understanding and communicating what the law said. And our elders are men who are skilled in the word. The word is clear enough to be understood by anyone, but it's not simple in the sense that it doesn't require any work or skill. Second Chronicles tells us that this was the Levites' job. You know, they traveled about from city to city, and they taught the people, helping them to understand the law. And Israel was commanded to support the Levites so that they didn't have to give up this ministry to go work the farm. So the implication is, right, that teaching the word is a full-time job. Paul says twice in the New Testament not to muzzle the ox when it treads out the, the grain. And 1 Timothy says that the elders who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. So the point is, we should pay our pastors to do the regular preaching so that they can devote themselves to the full-time job of studying and explaining the word. It takes hard work, like an ox treading out the grain. And just like all of us having our own Bibles, you know, we have resources today to help us understand the word that are beyond what Christians have ever had before. And we should take advantage of those. But again, I encourage you to carve out a special place in your mind for this setting where our elders who know us and love us open the word and explain it to us. Give that priority. You know, if you come to a text in your reading that you don't understand, let your first move be to go back through your notes or search the sermon archives and see if our elders have ever preached on the topic. That doesn't have to be the only place you go, right? We want to be good Bereans who weigh what's said and search the scriptures ourselves. But our elders have been given the task and an authority by God to explain his words to us. God speaks through his word, and then our elders come along and say, okay, this is what God meant when he said that. It's an unbelievably audacious thing to do, but that's what God has told them to do, and he's given them the authority to do it. You know, occasionally our elders will delegate a sermon like today, and we can benefit from that, but I'm not an elder. It's our elders who have the sobering responsibility every week to explain God's words to his people. Let's take that seriously. And let's all be those who devote ourselves to understanding what God is saying. Again, God is speaking. Pay attention. So the people gathered, and they heard the word and understood it. But then something happened that wasn't quite right. In verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is really sobering and wonderful. You know, God in his word, he tells us what to do, what to think, and also how to feel. That might be a hard word, but we need to hear it. So when the people heard and understood the words of the law, they wept. Why did they weep? Well, it's no mystery, actually. Israel was exiled from the promised land because of their unfaithfulness to God. And they were confronted by their unfaithfulness when they heard the law. And they had what seems like an appropriate reaction. They wept. They wept over their sin. There's no reason to think that their weeping was somehow insincere um, or inappropriate, or unrighteous in itself, I should say. But something about it wasn't appropriate. Ezra and Nehemiah told them, stop it. Stop crying. Be quiet. So what in the world's going on here? Well, first, what it doesn't mean, right? It obviously does not mean that it's wrong to grieve over sin or even that it's wrong to grieve corporately before God. In Ezra 10, we see Ezra mourned before God because of Israel's guilt, and it says that a great assembly joined with him. And again, if we look ahead to chapter 9, right after the Feast of Booths, we see Israel in sackcloth with earth on their heads, grieving and confessing their sin before God. The New Testament as well tells us to grieve over our sin. James tells us, "'Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded.'" Be wretched and mourn and weep. So it's right and good to grieve because of our sin. So then why did Ezra and Nehemiah tell them to stop? Well, the important thing to remember is that God had designated this day as a day of feasting 
the Feast of Trumpets was to be a time of holy celebration. This was the time for eating the fat and drinking sweet wine, not for weeping. That's something that God has the authority to do. It says the time will come for mourning and confession. We'll see that next week. But the Feast of Trumpets was a day for remembering and celebrating God's favor toward Israel. So Ezra and Nehemiah are saying to Israel, God has told us what today is about. Now bring your emotions into line with the truth about what's happening here. So the church today doesn't have this kind of command from God applied to specific days on the calendar. But that doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn from this. Um, I want us to think for a minute about the Christian duty of joy. You know, the, the world tells us that our feelings are sacrosanct. You can't judge my feelings. Um, but scripture is clear that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and at the same time, it's a Christian duty. God has the right, and it's a glorious thing, to tell us to stop grieving and to rejoice. There's an objective truth about our situation. God says, bring your feelings into line with the truth. Here's a legitimate use for your Bible app. Just go and search for the word rejoice and see how many times God's people are commanded to rejoice in the Bible. It's a lot. Here's just a couple. In Psalm 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. From Philippians 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then again in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So grief over your sin is absolutely necessary. And when you grieve over your sin, let it be like David. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. But grief over sin is never a place to land and stay. It's not the destination. After David wept, 2 Samuel says that, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So numbers can sometimes be misleading, but consider this. There are six or seven penitential psalms, like Psalm 38 that I just quoted, but there's something like 70 psalms that tell us to be glad and rejoice. And consider also, we said that God prescribed certain times in Israel for fasting and repentance and, and others for feasting and rejoicing. The Day of Atonement is actually the only day on the Jewish calendar that's set aside for fasting and self-affliction. On the other hand... There were six feasts that were commanded, most of them lasting many days. So six feast weeks, one fast day. Those were the proportions. So the Day of Atonement, where sin was dealt with, was centrally important, right? There's no feasting without it. But the Day of Atonement was there to clear the air for happier times. This is not a prosperity message where God promises that you'll have six happy days for every sad day in your life. I'm sure there were fat years and lean years at those feast tables in Israel. But this is a point about God's heart toward us and about what kind of heart actually brings glory to God. It's striking. They told the people, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Apparently, it's not more holy to be sad than it is to rejoice. Some of us need to hear this word. What does the catechism say is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to be brokenhearted before him forever? No. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, yes. At the end of verse 10, they told the people, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What an amazing thing to say. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This Hebrew word for strength, it's usually translated stronghold. That's the idea. Your joy from the Lord is your stronghold, your fortress. You know, notice that the need for a stronghold implies a battle. The claim is not that there's nothing to weep about. The claim is that in the midst of battle, the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. Peter tells us that even in the midst of trial, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me, a feast before me, in the presence of my enemies. It's important that we always remember what kind of story it is that we're living in. What's the narrative arc of this gospel story that God's telling and that we're a part of? It's a story about darkness giving way to light, about death giving way to resurrected life, sorrow and repentance clear the air for happy fellowship with God. To stay in your grief just means that you haven't fully understood the truth about your situation. The heart of the Christian 
is the heart of a thankful feaster. It's the heart of one who knows that he's invited to the king's table, invited into his family, and given his blessing. That's the truth of the situation. God would have us work to bring our feelings into line with the truth. So in verse 10, we see that God's generosity towards us overflows with joy and feasting, which then overflows in generosity towards others, specifically those who don't have the means to feast. He told them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. And then in verse 12, they did just that. So this was apparently a part of what it meant to feast in Israel. In the book of Esther, um, after the Jews were delivered from their enemy's plot to destroy them, Mordecai instituted a feast to honor, it says, the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It makes me think about my grandparents, whose Thanksgiving table always had an extra place set for a down-and-out college student or someone from out of town. And many of you are examples to me of that kind of thing. May it be true of all of us. So what does this mean for our worship here? Well, our worship should reflect the full emotional range of the Psalms. We must not neglect to lament over our sin and our brokenness, but we must not linger there too long. Taken on the whole, our worship should be characterized by joy, reverent joy. That's the picture that we have here in Nehemiah. In verse 6, again, all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Lifted hands and bowed heads. That's the heart posture of a Christian when he comes before God. A posture of joyful reverence. Now, we all know, of course, that the reality of the situation is that we don't come here collectively on Sunday morning with a smile on our face and a heart full of joy, necessarily. Some of us are weighed down by guilt, often weeping, as your mind is filled with a constant and acute awareness of sin or suffering. There's a word for you here. What's more common, I suspect, is that we come here feeling not much at all. Right? We're not weeping, but we're not rejoicing. We're just here. There's a word for us as well. But the destination is the same for all of us. So how do we get there? Well, I'm not going to patronize you by implying that just a few words are going to solve all your lifelong emotional struggles. But the point is that joy is a gift as well as a duty. And as such... We can approach it the same way we do so many other things in the Christian life. We cry out to God, and we do the stuff, trusting that God will work through it. So we start by acknowledging that our emotions need to be sanctified and trained, just as our minds and our bodies do. That's step one. And then we call out to God as David did. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Joy is a gift that only God can give. But the joy, sorry, the gift of joy doesn't usually just get beamed straight into your heart, right? The gift usually comes to us in the form of something that you can hear or see and touch. And there are, there are lots of different means of grace that God has given us to train our hearts to rejoice. That might be a good home group conversation topic. Share some battle tactics that you have found helpful in the fight for joy. The obvious one that we encounter here on a Sunday morning is worship. I'm sorry, it's music. Um, you know, we don't choose our worship music here. We don't choose our worship music here to give us all a chance to express what we come here feeling, but rather to help us feel what we ought when we come into God's presence. So the reason that we sing some sad songs, but mostly happy songs, is not because some of us are sad and others are happy and we need a song for everyone. It's because God says that it's right and good to mourn over our sin and the brokenness of the world at the proper time. And then it's right and good for us to remember what God has done and leave our mourning behind. That's why we sing songs like Arise My Soul Arise, Shake Off Your Guilty Fears, which we sang this morning. And that's why we sing it to a rousing, happy tune. We need help to get our hearts to the place where God calls us to be. 
That's not manipulative. It's a gift. It's a means of grace. And there are so many others. Um, We'll come back to that idea in a minute, but let's look at the last section of the chapter. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So, after reading the law on the first day, the heads of houses came together with Ezra on the second day for a Bible study. And by the way, this is a good reminder, fathers, that the word of God is for everyone in your family to hear. And as shepherd of your family, it's your responsibility to study the Bible and to know it well enough to explain it to your family, or at least to lead the way in helping them to understand. So you know that things are going well when you hear things like, Daddy, I read this strange verse in the Bible this morning. What does it mean? And if you don't know what it means, that's fine. Um, Let me go ask one of the pastors and get back to you is a perfectly respectable answer. So let's work towards more of that. Verse 14 says, "And And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So as they were studying, they discovered something. They came to this part in the law where the Feast of Booths is described in Leviticus uh, chapter 23, where it says this, it says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So remember, there were three parts to this celebration, and the third part, after the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, was the Feast of Booths. It was one of those feast weeks that I mentioned. So it was to be a time of resting and feasting and rejoicing, lasting for seven days, starting on the 15th day of the month. In addition to feasting, God said that they were to live in these booths, which are just like little structures, you know, covered in branches and leaves. They were to live in them for the seven days of the feast. And the purpose of it was to be a physical reminder to them of God's kindness in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and protecting them in the wilderness. So this wasn't the first time that Israel had kept the Feast of Booths since they returned from Babylon. Ezra tells us that they had kept the feast portion of the celebration, but apparently they had neglected this part, the part where all of them were supposed to camp out in these booths as a reminder of what God had done for them a thousand years earlier. And this is kind of interesting. It sounds a bit similar to the story of when Josiah was king. You remember that? When the high priest was kind of rummaging around in the temple library one day and he found a copy of the law. He comes out and he says, hey guys, look what I found. And they read it and then they all tore their clothes and wept because they realized how unfaithful they had been. But this is not quite like that. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law. So it, it couldn't have been that they were unaware that this command existed. Apparently it had just been neglected. They had kept the feast, but they had neglected this part where they were supposed to live in booths. And for whatever reason, this time when they were reading it, they were pricked. They said, we should be doing this. And so they did. It had been a thousand years since Israel had done this thing. How strange it must have felt to some of them. What do you mean? We're going to build tree forts and live in them for a week? Like, yep, that's what we're going to do because that's what it says. And verse 17 says there was great rejoicing because of it. So what's the connection for us? So one obvious application is that we need to be ready to do what the Bible commands us, even if it seems strange. We should be those who do the hard work of figuring out what the Bible is saying, and then we simply submit to it, even if it's weird. Once we know what God is saying, all there is left to do is to obey. And let's be open also to new convictions, even about well-known texts. I've had this experience, as I know that many of you have. of being sure about some issue or text for years and then being confronted with a new way of thinking about it. 
Sometimes it's just a tweak. Sometimes it's an about face. Um, let's hold to our convictions, but let's approach the Bible with humility and be willing to change our positions if God reveals something new to us. But here's another connection point, and the one that I want to end on. Thinking some more about the means that God has given us to help us tune our hearts to sing his praise. Think for a minute about why God asked them to do this strange thing. What was the point of camping out in booths for a week every year? The point was to help them remember God's kindness. You see, when God commands us to rejoice, he doesn't just say, suck it up, stop crying. He says, remember what I have done. And then he goes further and he says, here, here's a gift to help you remember. He doesn't simply command us to be joyful, although he has that authority. He reminds us of what's true and he points us to Christ. So what physical reminder has God given us here to point us to Christ and to remind us of his kindness? There are many, but the central one for us here that I have in mind is another feast that God commanded, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a mysterious thing, but one thing we can say for certain is that it is a reminder to us that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. How kind of him to remind us. And how beautiful that the reminder that God chose would be a feast, a memorial feast that we share with King Jesus. The Lord's Supper is not given to us to be a reminder of our sin. It's a reminder of Christ and of God's gift to us in Christ. You know, we talk about celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let's treat it as a celebration. I think we do that reasonably well here. Let's do that. Let's treat it as a celebration. The Lord's Supper is a feast, a time to rejoice and remember the good things that God has done for us. And here's the kicker. Their feast pointed to Christ as well. It all points to Christ. Jesus said, you know, you search the scriptures, meaning the law, looking for eternal life, but it's they that bear witness of me. Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, was there on that platform in Jerusalem speaking to his people, bearing witness about himself through the reading of the word. And he's here on this platform every Sunday speaking to his people, through the reading and proclamation of his word. He was there with the Israelites in their feast, reminding them of his kindness to them in the wilderness. And he's here with us in our feast, reminding us of his kindness to us at the cross. So we come together every Lord's Day and we do the things that we do, just as God's people have from the very beginning, ultimately because it's what God commanded us to do. But what a happy command it is. It's our joy to obey, because in these things, God meets with us. God invites us, commands us even, to leave our guilty weeping and our cold apathy behind us and to come and enter into the joy of his presence. So, all you fearful or brokenhearted, come. All you stoic and unfeeling, come. All you God's people, come and hear his word. Understand, remember, and rejoice. Amen. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we bless you. Thank you for the gift of your presence here among your gathered people. We long to be with you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And thank you for the gift of understanding. It's a remarkable gift, Father. And thank you for reminding us of your kindness, how quickly we forget. Lord, help us to remember. And thank you for turning our weeping into rejoicing. Father, give us joy-filled hearts, hearts filled with gratitude for your many gifts. You are a generous Father. We thank you. Amen.